Welcome to BIB Today, the daily podcast from the newsroom of Business in Vancouver. I'm Kirk LaPointe, publisher and editor-in-chief. Aaron O'Toole was turfed Wednesday as federal conservative leader, having only secured the role in August 2020 and having run in only one election at the helm. Now, we want to look at the reasons behind his departure. There are many of those and the implications for his party. There are many of those with Mario Canseco. He's the president of Research Co. It's a public opinion research firm. Mario, of course, writes for us at BIB and at Glacier Media a couple of times weekly. Good to see you. Good to see you, too. It's a rough day for Aaron O'Toole. Uh, what begat this, Mario? Why, why, why does this happen? Now, I think it's the expectations that were created in the early stages of the federal election campaign. And that really hasn't gone away for many conservatives. Uh, it was uh, a situation related to timing. The fact that Afghanistan falls in the early stages of the campaign, that you have a former soldier starting to talk about foreign policy in a way that was connecting with many Canadians who probably expected the same type of gravitas whenever Erin O'Toole was talking about issues such as housing or the economy and jobs and didn't really get it. So it's a campaign that peaks too early, starts to drop, you wind up in a situation that is very similar to the one that the Conservatives fought under Andrew Scheer. And the feeling that something could have been done differently was lingering in the Conservative ranks, um, ending with the situation that we had this morning. You know, I always look at, the, at a Conservative leader and say, uh, a little bit like a BC Liberal leader, that, that they're, they're kind of managing a coalition. You know, and, and there's a covenant that has to happen inside that coalition, and people all have to find a way to line up. Um, in Aaron O'Toole's case, the you know the the observation that's been very prevalent has been that he ran a leadership campaign quite differently than he ran an election. So, did his problems start there? Do you think? I think they start uh, with the way in which the party is selecting its leaders. Uh, we are missing the cleansing effect of a convention where you have people crossing the floor and discussing where to go and uniting for the sake of the party, the same way we did in the 1980s and 1990s. I'm not suggesting that all of those conventions were successful, but you don't come out of there in a scenario where half of the people didn't really have you as their first choice. And ultimately, This is not the first time that something like this happened. It happened to Andrew Scheer. It happened to Andrew Wilkinson at the BC Liberals. When you're everybody else's second or third choice, it doesn't mean that they want you. It means that they're worried about the guy who is supposed to be leading the party at the time. So missing that opportunity to unite, particularly with the situation related to the COVID-19 pandemic, you know, it forces his hand. He can't really travel as much as he wanted to. You don't have the opportunity to fill gyms and uh, city halls with people who want to talk to you. Um, it was a very complicated campaign from the start. But ultimately, you're starting from a weakness in the sense that um, you are not the first choice for people. And you certainly did not do enough to win the people who voted for others. So part of the problem here is the way in which the leaders are chosen. If we continue to have this ranked ballot that we don't use to elect anything else in this country, we are going to have leaders who are going to be perceived as weak. Um, perceived as as uh, as weak at times, and yet... Uh he ran a very forceful take back, let's take back Canada campaign for the leadership. Um, he then softened considerably 
you could argue, made himself more accessible, um, certainly shifted positions in such a way to try to broaden the tent. But the people who got him to that dance felt a little jilted at that point. Um, how does a leader manage a, 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 then a leadership campaign and an election campaign and keep everybody with them? Well, I think the main challenge here was uh, trying to broaden the base by bringing disenchanted Justin Trudeau voters into the conservative fold. That has been the success of the conservative party uh, since it unified. Uh, the notion of people who were dissatisfied with the way things were going, but we didn't have that many of them. You know, there were certain things where there was a lot of criticism towards Justin Trudeau, but certainly not enough to warrant the type of movement that we saw right after the first election where you had Paul Martin against Stephen Harper, where you saw the conservative ranks growing every month and people abandoning the Liberal Party on a, very, on a fairly consistent basis. Um, this time around, I think part of the difficulty for Erin O'Toole was that uh, a lot of his voters expected him to be a little bit more radical. And I think there's a lot of people out there making the assumption that every vote that went to the People's Party under Maxime Bernier would have gone to the Conservatives if Erin O'Toole had behaved differently. Uh, this is good mathematics, but it's not good politics. You know, there are so many different issues at play that make people vote for a specific party. And we can't just argue that a united party without Maxime Bernier would have been more successful. Um, part of the problem is trying to coalesce the fact that you're looking for people who are disenchanted with the liberals and are trying to steer clear of the radical uh, right that doesn't want to get vaccinated, that wants to protest outside hospitals. You know, I don't think this is a situation where you have to uh, cater to that crowd if you want to become prime minister of the entire country. So the vaccine was, has been very good for Canadians, uh, not so good for Aaron O'Toole. What happened in the way he handled the vaccine issue from the get-go that you think um, precipitated his downfall today? Well, I think there are moments in history when the conservative leader needs to look at certain things that are happening under a liberal prime minister and decide that they want to steer clear from it. Uh, when Stephen Harper has been asked about his uh, biggest regret uh, from the time he served in Ottawa, he has mentioned several times that it was supporting the war in Iraq. Uh, it was expected of him to say something to the effect of we're not with the liberals on this one. We are the official opposition and we're not going to be with them. And so many years later, he realizes that that was a mistake. That wasn't something that had to be said at that particular time and in that particular way. Um, similar situation here. I think there was an expectation of him that he would be perceived as weak if he decided to say, let's stand with our government in this crucial juncture and essentially allow for everybody to be vaccinated and to be supportive of this. They start to get phone calls. They start to get people saying, we're not going to vote for you unless you come out against vaccine passports, a policy that has been consistently supported by more than two thirds of Canadians. So I think that is definitely part of the problem. You know, you might be looking at this very radical group that doesn't want to deal with COVID-19, essentially pretend that it doesn't exist. Um, but if that group won elections, Maxime Bernier would be prime minister right now. But wasn't part of his dilemma with this issue on the vaccine, the fact that he couldn't 
instill a form of discipline in the caucus to ensure they were all vaccinated. I mean, right, right down to this day, there appear to be conservative MPs who haven't been vaccinated. Um, was that also a big part of how Canadians looked at them and said, well, you can't really preach to us as a leader on the public health benefits of a vaccine if you're not going to ask the people right below you to get it. Well, that is one of the reasons that makes the party not really that trustworthy in the minds of Canadians who might be disenchanted with Justin Trudeau or who aren't looking mm -hmm. at the NDP as an option for their vote of displeasure against the government. Um, part of the issue here is when we moved into this Australian rule system where the caucus can essentially boot you, like that is complicated. You cannot have the same type of uh, support from your caucus or essentially bring them in line with everything that you're trying to do is something like this is out there. And I think they saw the opportunity to say, well, we can do this the same way that they do in Australia, get together as a caucus and essentially figure out that his time is, is up. Um, it's complicated and it's ironic. You know, we look at what is happening right now in the United Kingdom. You can't have the same type of rule being applied to somebody like Boris Johnson. It's, it's just complicated. We, we yeah. have it here because they decided to do it that way. Um, but it could lead to all sorts of craziness. I mean, this is happening a few months after the election. People are dissatisfied with the backdrop of what is happening in Ottawa with all of these truckers. Um, who's to say that three months from now we'll have the same situation? So if there had not been a trucker's convoy, would he still be leader? Probably, yes. I think part of what we see here is you need to react in a way that appeases everybody. And the problem with the trucker convoy is he's of two minds. Do I say that these people represent the best in Canada? They are being affected by the vaccine mandates. They are seeing their livelihoods in danger because of Justin Trudeau. And then you have the other side who says, wait a minute, these people are out there uh, with a bunch of nasty paraphernalia uh, doing a lot of stuff that most Canadians aren't particularly happy with. You can't have it both ways. And part of the problem, especially in this world we live in now, where the sound bites are getting smaller and smaller, uh, it's complicated for him to say, I respect what you're doing. Maybe this isn't the right way to, to go about this business that you want us to pay attention to. Uh, and that makes him weak. If you don't appease to the crowd, then you're not somebody who is doing what the other half of the party wants to see. Um, if this ultimately ends up being a situation related to values, and we heard a little bit of that over the past couple of days, where this had a lot to do with conversion therapy. You know, we've asked about conversion therapy, and there's fewer than a third of conservatives who believe that it is real and who believe that it should not be banned. So are you really appeasing to something that is appealing to only a third of your base? I mean, it's just unfathomable. It's not the way in which you build a party that is geared to be successful in a country like Canada. It, it's one thing to dispatch a leader, and that's, of course, not an easy task, and, and it, it's quite disruptive. It's a whole other thing to find a replacement. Um, and what that, re what that replacement needs to, uh, to be as a, as a unifier and as a, as, as, you know, a spokesperson for a party. Um, do you see anybody who fits that mold right away? Well, our natural reaction would be to look at the uh, specific provinces, and there's not a lot there. 
You know, you I don't see a situation right now where Premier Ford in Ontario is going to say, I want this. This is a good opportunity to try to get into the national stage. Um, Jason Kenney has experience federally, uh, but he has been presiding the government that has been consistently ranked the lowest on its COVID-19 management. And he might be looking for a way out because right now the election seems unwinnable at this particular stage. Um, there's talk about Brad Wall. You know, we've been talking about how his French is really not there for a long time. So unless he spent the last three or four years learning French, he might not want this again. And there's not a lot of support uh, coming out of caucus uh, for a particular individual. I mean, there are certainly people who have been better known for the roles as critics. Pierre Polyever comes to mind, um, but it might not be a good solution in the long term, particularly because we don't have an actual convention. I think part of what happened with Erin O'Toole is nobody can get together. Everything, everybody has to vote. Everything is virtual. You don't really get the way in which politicians change your mind, which is by shaking your hand and spending 10 minutes with you. So unless yeah. they have a convention that looks more like the previous ones, even if it's not the dream scenario of somebody crossing the floor, which makes for great television, of course. Um, but ultimately, if they don't have that cleansing effect of coming out of there with a unified leader, then we're going to be doing this again every couple of years. This is going to be like the Olympics. Yeah. I recall, though, that uh, Ronna Ambrose gained um, a lot of credit for the way that she handled the interim leadership of the party. Uh, and yet some of the names being uh, forwarded in this case um, are not the sort of stand back person that she was. Um, they would probably lean forward and be um, be much more uh, confrontational in the House of Commons and so on. Um, what kind of what kind of leader do you think the party needs to to get in the interim while it uh, while it deliberates and establishes the uh, the rules of the road for the next uh, leadership race? I think they need somebody who has a little bit of federal experience, but also somebody who can appeal to specific provinces. I think part of the problem with the party is, it has become extremely localized, very popular in Alberta, Saskatchewan and Manitoba, in parts of British Columbia, in parts in Ontario, and that's it. They didn't really do much to try to get a foothold in Quebec. Uh, they did a little bit better in the Maritimes, but not by much. So part of it is how can you find that unity? And you know, part of the difficulty here is going to be figuring out a future for this party that is not related to the old and I can't believe I'm saying this, but the old conservative party under Harper. You know, you need to figure out a way to have younger people involved to try to get uh, Canadians who maybe haven't looked at this party as something that they want to support because uh, it's very problematic. I think the worst case scenario for this party is to come out there and say, we need to be a slightly less radical than the People's Party. And that is going to give us that three or 4% we need in the polls to make this competitively decent the time the next election rolls around. I think that would be a monumental disaster. I mean, I, I might be mistaken on this one, but I, I think you and I have even talked about how uh, many of the things that Aaron O'Toole was espousing as a, as a leader in a campaign were probably gonna resonate reasonably well with Canadians. So, Ultimately, do they just need to find somebody a little bit like O'Toole or willing to say some of the things that O'Toole said 
but who executes against the plan better. I think that's part of the essence of this. You know, the, the, the first couple of months of O'Toole's leadership, the self-deprecation, the press conferences, hi, I'm Erin O'Toole, you don't know who I am, it bombed. Uh, we saw fewer Canadians uh, who liked them and more Canadians who went from not being aware of who he was to disliking him. Uh, the campaign changes everything because it played into his strengths. You know, here's a former soldier talking about Afghanistan. This makes sense. That's when they started mm -hmm. to climb up the charts. That's when things were a little bit different. It's ultimately in the way in which you voice those views. And, and part of the difficulty here was this is being accompanied by probably one of the worst social media campaigns that we've seen in this country. The ad with the porta potty, the situations where they were criticizing Trudeau, the Willy Wonka yeah. and the chocolate factory stuff. Yeah, uh, yeah. This you try, is you the, try to repress some of those memories if you're a conservative, that's for sure. Well, and, yeah. and this, is, this is part of the problem here. You know, when you send that type of mixed signal, then I don't know when you're actually serious about things. And what they need is somebody who is serious about things. Uh, well enough to talk about things. I mean, it's it's unfathomable to me that at the height of inflation, when you have so many Canadians saying, I expect everything to be more expensive, the level of trust in the conservative leader hovers around 30 something. You know, you're not yeah. connecting on an issue that people care about and that they are thoroughly displaced with the handling of the prime minister. So the prime minister called an election at what many Canadians felt was an extremely inopportune time for, for voters, but a very opportune time for him as it proved. What does he do now? Does he, does he call an election <laughs> fairly quickly and try to get his majority? I think people would be very, very upset if that were the case. Uh, we said that last time. We, we said that last time. Well, but you know, I think it was a different. <laughs> it was a different type of upset. You know, we mm -hmm. came to that election after the experiences of, uh, particularly British Columbia, and, and to a lesser extent Saskatchewan. You know, things are fine. Don't rock the boat. Let's just keep things going steady as they have to. And the people reacted very well in BC to that, to the point where you know Andrew Wilkinson lost a lot of the seats that were left over from the Christie Clark days. Um, what we have here is a little bit different. I think there was an opportunity from Canadians to say to the prime minister, okay, wow, let's see if we can rekindle the magic that you showed back in 2015 and we give you that majority. And it just wasn't meant to be. Uh, it's more complicated now because there's still a lot of animosity in specific parts of the country towards the liberals. Uh, part of that majority scenario entails doing better in Quebec, which is not going to be that easy, winning some of the seats that they lost in Ontario, getting a few of the seats that they lost in British Columbia, that might give you that majority scenario. Um, but people aren't particularly thrilled with this right now. And you're ultimately giving them an opportunity to look at the Conservatives differently. I think part of the Prime Minister right now is thinking, I should totally do this. But what if the leader starts to connect in a way that is more meaningful? What if there's somebody out there who starts to talk to the middle class in a way that Justin Trudeau hasn't been able to, then it's not in your best interest to call the election because you think you're going to get a majority. And he wouldn't do it right away, would he? Like, I sincerely in, hope not. They, I think they, we all need a break. And, and you know, we got the Senate elections in the States in November. We have a lot of stuff that is still moving. You know, we're heading into election season in Quebec. Later, it's Ontario and Alberta. 
um, the organizers are the same for most of these races. So I think it will also be complicated to try to do something over the summer. I think if anything, this gives them a little bit of time to try to implement an agenda that is going to be more meaningful. Uh, but, uh, you know, it's really something that the guy who we were consistently told that wasn't ready for this is now going to be facing the fourth different leader of the official opposition since he's been in Ottawa. Yeah. yeah. Last, uh, last question. Um, you know, people have a hard time remembering Andrew Shear's um, accomplishments inside the Conservative Party. Is there one that Aaron O'Toole will be able to claim? Was there an accomplishment that he made? I think the fact that the campaign was significantly more competitive than people expected. I think when we were all wondering whether Justin Trudeau was going to pull the plug, uh, they were 10 points ahead, they were 12 points ahead, they were way ahead in British Columbia because people were very happy with the way things were going related to the pandemic. And when the campaign began, uh, they took a second look at the conservatives, they connected very well with local candidates. And I think that was definitely one of the reasons why the conservatives, at least in British Columbia, are back to the place where they've always been in this century, which is ahead of everybody. Uh, mm. I think that definitely deserves recognition. Uh, but part of it is when you come so close, uh, there's always that disappointment. What could we have done to get those 15 or 20 seats to, to switch hands? And, you know, part of the thing with Erin O'Toole is uh, he was a leader during the pandemic. He stops being a leader during the pandemic. Like we never got to know the type of Erin O'Toole that would have run a campaign in, let's say, 2019 or for the sake of argument, 2024. Like it's a completely different ballgame because of the tools that were handed to him. It is, though, uh, very emblematic of the uh, instant gratification and instant expectation and the very small margin of error that today's political leaders have. Yeah. Anyway, Maria, always good to see you. Thanks a lot for your help today. Always good to see you too, Kirk. Thank you. Mario Canseco is the president of Research Co., public opinion research firm. He writes for us at BIB and at Glacier Media a couple times a week as part of his work. I'm Kirk LePoint, publisher and editor-in-chief of BIB. Thanks a lot for watching.